0: I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Great to see you. Doesn't the church look wonderful? I wanted just at the beginning to add my word of uh, thanks to all those who have worked so hard this uh, Holy Week in getting ready for this event. The staff, the Sanctuary Guild, which looks so beautiful in here, and Mr. Keith and the musicians. It's been really outstanding, and don't you look fabulous in your... Easter finery, and I'm glad not everyone has given up Easter bonnets. I love it. Thank you. And I've been looking forward to singing the triumphant Easter songs we've been waiting for so long. We've been uh, practicing them with the children through Lent, seeing Lent as a time to practice for Easter. One of my favorite lines comes in the last song, come with high and holy hymning or humming, declare the Lord's triumphant song. I love that Easter song. I love movies and stories that have a surprise ending. Something, some twist, some twist and change at the end that you weren't expecting. Better than anything you could have imagined. And in the end, makes better sense than any ending you could have imagined. It just fits. It's sublime and it makes sense of the whole story that went before it. I think of the resurrection like that. It's this unexpected, surprising, shocking ending, that Jesus didn't stay in the tomb, but rose again from the dead. Because the resurrection, as hard as it might be to believe for modern man, is not an epilogue, not an afterthought, not a later edition. It is instead absolutely crucial to the story. It's the vindication of all that Jesus did and taught. Some people would say it's a vindication of all of creation. The New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado says, The resurrection of Jesus is the single most important event in the formation of faith in Jesus for the early church. If you look at the book of Acts, every sermon that's recorded centers upon Jesus being raised from the dead. If you look at the epistle reading from 1 Corinthians, it talks about something of first importance... He died, he was buried, he rose again, and he appeared to many. In 1973, three films about the person of Jesus and the life of Jesus came out. You probably know a couple of them, Godspell Spell and Jesus Christ Superstar. Both came out in 1973. Both of them omitted any clear reference to the resurrection. They did not know what to do with that part of Jesus' story. There was another film released in 1973 called The Gospel Road, which I'd never heard of, uh, but it's by Johnny Cash. And good old Johnny Cash includes a clear view of the resurrection. Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, and we came and watched with him. John Stott says, he stepped into our shoes, bore our sin, Endured our penalty died our death that we might be forgiven But then he was taken down from the cross and buried and the world was plunged into darkness The disciples were overcome with despair All the things he had spoke of so convincingly new life the power to love redemption All of these now were suspect and they were plunged into deep sadness I believe that our capacity for joy is directly related to our experience of pain and suffering. Those who have been most familiar with suffering seem also to have the greatest ability to rejoice and to celebrate. The disciples who thought all was lost discovered that all was gained. Only if we have agonized with him... In our understanding of the cross, will we truly embrace and appreciate the wonder and joy of his resurrection? Now, this morning, it's not my intent to talk about evidence for the resurrection or to try to explain how it's central to the Christian message. Because you're here, I'm assuming that that's where you're at. But I do think we need to ask ourselves, what should we do about it? So let's have a quick look at the gospel reading uh, that's in your bulletin. Mark, this is the account of the resurrection in Mark. Mark was the earliest of the four gospels, probably written in the early 50s. Jesus died in the early 30s, 20 years later. The other gospels don't come for another 20 years after that. So this is what the early church had. Verse 1, the Sabbath was over. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. The women did what they knew how to do. They waited for the Sabbath to be over. They planned, they prepared, they went shopping. That's how you show devotion to a dead body. But by buying the spices, it becomes clear that they were not expecting him to be raised from the dead. I read in a Time magazine recently about the seven wonders of the world And one of them, which I hadn't been aware of, was the mausoleum in Halicarnassus. It's the grave of King Mausolus. That's how we get the word mausoleum. He built it as a tomb. It was so ornate and beautiful that it was declared by Antipater of Sidon as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it made me think, in what way is our church like a mausoleum? Is it possible... That someone would confuse our devotion to Jesus with devotion to a dead master whose memory we honor. It's easier to honor a dead body with spices, but we are called rather to follow a risen Lord into the fray of battle, to heed the trumpet call. Jesus is alive and he wants to lead us into the fray, wants us to raise our banner and to give the Easter shout. We have Easter songs and we have an Easter shout of victory. Verse 2 says, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, the accounts we have in the Gospels. Uh, each have a different perspective on the resurrection. They both include some things that are unique to them and leave out some other things. But one of the things besides Jesus being raised from the dead is that it was women who attended the tomb in the beginning and that it was after the Sabbath had ended and that it was early on the first day of the week. Now, I find there's great confusion about why Christians gather for worship on a Sunday. When I ask kids in the school, they will say... It's because it's the Sabbath. And I said, "No, it's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday, the seventh day of the week. That's when God rested. Christians rather gather on a Sunday because it is, of course, the day of resurrection. That's why Christians from the get-go have gathered on a Sunday. I like to think of Easter as a huge bell being rung, and that every Sunday through the year, like an echo. Because if we think of gathering on the day of rest, it's tempting to think of worship, what we do when we gather, as something we do to take a rest, to take a break. And you listen to the preacher and you fall asleep and you have a nice little snooze during (laughs) that. Instead of being a reminder of the power unleashed in the world through Jesus' resurrection, his call to us to follow him with expectation and anticipation I sometimes think with the children in chapel at school, I'm I'm very keen that I teach them truth and I don't want to lead them astray. I'd be very upset if I taught them something wrong. I would be much more upset if I made the Christian gospel boring. How can we take, Tony Campola says, how do we take the most revolutionary thing that ever happened and make it boring or irrelevant? The message of the resurrection should be enthralling, beguiling, absorbing, and engrossing next Sunday at churches in Houston, we will refer to it as Low Sunday. The clergy are exhausted, we've exhausted everybody. It's Low Sunday because attendance goes back to normal. It seems low in comparison to this fabulous celebration we have today. But in Eastern Orthodoxy, they call the week following Easter, Bright Week, and the Sunday following Easter Sunday, Bright Sunday. And there is an ancient tradition within Eastern Orthodoxy that it is a holy humor kind of Sunday where they play jokes on one another, where they tell jokes, they have a party. They remember that Jesus liked to be the life of the party. The custom is rooted in the musings of the early church theologians such as Augustine and Chrysostom who muse that God played a practical joke on the devil by raising Jesus from the dead on Easter and they taught Christians the Easter laugh, Risus Pascalis. They laughed. I was tempted to tell you a joke this morning and then reserve the punchline till next week. <laughs> Verse three they had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? They got the wrong end of the stick, they weren't at all prepared. ...for what they would see. There's a story about uh, Wellington. In the Battle of Waterloo... ...the French forces were fighting under Napoleon in 1815... ...and the the Allied forces were fighting under Wellington. Well, back in 1815, they relied on a series of semaphores... ...connecting and passing on messages. And so on June June the 18th, 1815... ...the message came through and the people in the city... ...there was a relay tower on the Winchester Cathedral that came through letter by letter Wellington defeated at that point the famous English fog rolled in and they couldn't see and they thought that Wellington had lost the battle and they in sadness and grief and fear wondered what would happen to their country and then the fog cleared and the rest of the message came through Wellington defeated the enemy and they had won And sometimes we jump to conclusions. And we need to ask ourselves, are we asking the wrong questions? Wrong questions of God. Wrong questions of ourselves. Verse 4, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which had been very large, had already been rolled away. Their posture tells us everything. They were going to the tomb with heads hung down. And when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. When they thought that Jesus was dead... Moving the stone was the big problem. When they got to the tomb, they were encountered with something much more perplexing. Now, what do we do? Verses 5 to 7, then, is not a resurrection appearance like we find in the other Gospels. It's the announcement that Jesus is dead. And the contrast Jesus, who was crucified, has been raised. He is not here. But go tell the disciples, they will see him in Galilee. Tell the disciples and Peter. The, he, the angel specifies Peter. And as I was reading it, I thought, can I insert my name there? Am I meant to? Tell the disciples and tell Bob. Peter had disappointed Jesus by denying that he even knew him. How many times have I tacitly denied knowing Jesus? Jesus by what I've done or what I've neglected to say. And I need to be reminded, and maybe you need to be reminded, that he has a mission for you. He has forgiveness for you. He has transformation and redemption for you. And then we come to the last verse of the gospel. Talk about surprise endings. Have you ever noticed how the gospel of Mark ends? So they went out, fled from the tomb, For terror and amazement had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. End of story. Did you ever notice that before? What's going on? Did Mark get interrupted? Did he write a longer ending that got lost? Commentators are split on that. They don't know what happened. They do know that much later people penned an ending because they were so uncomfortable with it and they tried to include it. If you read your Bible, there's a line after verse 8, and then there'll be another ending that most people would say was not original. What a way to end the gospel story. I think it is an invitation to place ourselves in the story, to place ourselves in the women's shoes, and to feel again what it must have been like to have encountered the empty tomb and be told that Jesus was no longer dead. For the women, it was a visceral response, seized with terror and amazement. One of the commentators has said, was the purpose of this enigmatic ending to suggest to the reader that if they have even begun to understand the full significance of what had occurred, they too will be bound to respond with amazement and godly fear. I've been at this Christian thing for so long, it's very tempted to become jaded or callous or complacent about it and forget the wonder and the honor. William Sangster was a song leader and revival leader. Near the end of his life, he had lost his voice. He had medical problems with his voice, and his daughter was with him just moments before he died. It was Easter Sunday morning, and he whispered to her, How terrible to wake up on Easter and have no voice to shout, he is risen. How worse to have a voice and not want to shout. The resurrection changed the world. Has it changed you? Has it changed us? God has demonstrated his power in the resurrection of Jesus over death and despair. He vindicates the love shown on the cross. Will we allow it to move us at our deepest core? To embrace it and live it out in our lives? Will it amaze us, undo us, heal us, transform us? Not just as an individual, but as a community. The community of St. Francis here in this place. Will we show up to church on Sunday remembering that he is alive And has called us to be involved in the world and to pray for the world. In Acts chapter 10 in our reading today, look at verse 42 in the first page. He commanded us to preach to the people, to open our mouths, to do something about it. Did you notice the Easter lilies? It was really disappointing for our our sanctuary guild who did such a good job. But a lot of them aren't open. They're supposed to be open. The glory of the Easter lady is to be open. We need to open our lives and our hands and our hearts and our mouth. We have the Easter songs, the Easter shout, the Easter laugh, and Easter prayers. Prayers of hope, prayers of anticipation, that as we encounter difficult situations in our world, God will hear our prayers, and his power is able to make a difference as we Submit to him. William Barclay said, the resurrection changed sad and despairing men and women into people radiant with joy and flaming with courage. Has it changed you? Will you allow it to? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.